Justin Shears and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. After a mammoth effort in writing, recording and releasing their self-titled double album in the last half of 1968, one could assume that the Beatles would be out of ideas for the new year of 1969. In fact, this couldn't be further from the truth. All four had worked on their own projects in the months between the release of the White Album and ringing in the new year. Paul and George had worked with other artists, both playing and producing, and John had performed with his one-night-only supergroup, The Dirty Mac, for a Rolling Stones film project. Hi, Ringo. Hi, George. Happy New Year. Hi, Ringo. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I'm going to give George's donkey. Oh, yeah. For the Beatles, as a group, the new year began on a large, open, very cold soundstage at Twickenham Film Studios in West London on the 2nd of January 1969. Why? Well, the Beatles were assembling to begin their new project. With the death of Brian Epstein 18 months earlier, Paul had taken up the mantle of pseudo-manager, trying to keep the band moving in some sort of coherent direction. This didn't always go down so well with the rest of the band. Well, it was another one like Magical Mystery Tour that, in a nutshell, Paul wanted to, make, it was time for another Beatle movie or something, he wanted us to go on the road or do something, you know. And as usual, George, I'm going, oh, we don't want to do it, fucking all that. And he sort of set it up, and uh, there was all discussions about where to go and all of that. And uh, I would just tag along, and I had Yoko by then. I didn't even give a shit about nothing, you know. And I was stoned all the time, too, on age, etc. And uh, I just didn't give a shit, you know. And nobody did, you know. Paul had this idea that we were going to rehearse first. He always, he's more like Simon and Garfunkel, you know, like looking for perfection all the time. And uh, so he has these ideas that we'll rehearse and then make the album, you know. And of course, we're lazy fuckers and we've been playing for 20 years, for fuck's sake. We're grown men, we're not going to sit around rehearsing, you know. And I'm not, anyway. We couldn't get into it. You know? And we put down a few tracks and nobody was in it at all. Just, I don't know. It was just a, it was a dreadful, dreadful feeling in Twickenham studio and being filmed all the time, you know, like that. I just wanted them to go away and we'd be there at eight in the morning and you couldn't make music at eight in the morning or at ten or whatever it was in a strange place with people filming you and coloured lights. And the idea for Let It Be was a good one, but it never really materialised. The basic idea was that John and Paul and George should write new songs for the album that were going to be really good and we would vet them and make sure they were good and maybe do demo tracks for them. But the actual album itself, we thought, let's make a live album. We'd never done this. For the first time, let's make a live album of original music before an audience. And that was what we wanted to do with Let It Be. American Michael Lindsay Hogg, who had directed the promotional films for Paperback Writer and Rain in 1966, Hey Jude and Revolution in 1968, and The Rolling Stones' Rock and Roll Circus, which John had recently been a part of, 
was enlisted to direct the new film. Let It Be was originally going to, it wasn't even called Let It Be, it was originally going to be a television special, like on CBS or NBC. Um, but we all kind of disagreed about what it was going to be, where we were going to do it, what it would be like. And so the, that idea got scrapped. So there wasn't a television special. But we were shooting a document, we were shooting documentary footage all the time because before we'd started it, McCartney had had the idea that we should have a little trailer the week before the TV special was on of them rehearsing and stuff like that. So the TV special was gone, but we still were shooting the documentary footage every day. And I knew there were some really interesting things, not only of them playing and rehearsing, because no one had ever shot them playing and rehearsing before, but about exchanges between them, between Paul and John, or Paul and George, or George and John Ringo, whatever. And also the dynamic of sort of what was going on with them at the time, which was different than when I'd first worked with them in, with Paperback Writer a couple of years earlier. But I had a feeling that, because they, they're musicians, they were interested in the, making an album, they didn't care about the, the this film footage so much. Okay. Running. Oh, so now we're going to take the Beatles and I'll be quiet. Glyn Johns was initially employed to oversee the sound for the rehearsals and television broadcast, with the plan being that George Martin would then take over as producer once official recordings began. As it turned out, he would have a lot more to do with the project than first anticipated. The original, Paul's original idea for Let It Be, as perhaps you all know, was, it's a very good idea actually, no one else has ever done it, was to write a bunch of songs and record them live in, in front of an audience, as a show. So it would be a live album of new material. I suppose there aren't that many artists that can get away with that really, but they could, it's slightly different. So it was the middle of winter, and his idea was to go to Tunisia. There's, there was some Roman amphitheatre in Tunisia or something, where, which obviously still exists. And he wanted to go there, he wanted to get a bunch of Beatles fans, stick them on a boat, take them to Tunisia, it's a bit expensive, uh, and put, have them as an audience. And it would be a TV show. And the making of that whole process would, was to be a documentary. So we'd started in, on the soundstage at Chicken and Film Studios, uh, rehearsing the material, and um, by the time, I don't know, three or four days later, every time we had a tea break or whatever, the, we'd discuss what was going to go on and what wasn't. And eventually it became apparent that the idea of going to Africa wasn't a flyer. Ringo said he wouldn't like the food. <laughs> I seem to remember that, which I thought was quite funny. Uh, spending hundreds of thousands of pounds moving people around, they couldn't afford a chef to cook, cook eggs and chips with Ringo. So, uh, so the whole idea sort of got blown apart, and here we are, we've got great songs. The Get Back Sessions were the first Beatles recordings to be widely bootlegged. Dozens of hours of material from the filming at Twickenham, and later at the Beatles' own studio in Savile Row, London, began to make their way onto bootleg LPs from the very early 1970s. But where did the sound come from? The answer is Nagra Reels small 15-minute reel-to-reel tapes run on Nagra tape machines onto which the sound for the film was captured to be later synced to match the images, as can be heard by the intermittent beeping and slate announcements by camera crew in some tracks. Three, take one. Giles Martin, son of Beatles producer George Martin, explains. The first period of time was Twickenham. They recorded everything on this thing called Nagra tape, which is this sort of 
these little sort of small brown quarter inch film reels, so just mono reels. But everything's been recorded. Everything they recorded, 150 hours, I think, of audio. There's about 52 hours of film. This project was stolen. They've disappeared and then they appeared on bootlegs. So Beatles fans have got, I think you can buy 150 CDs of everything. And there was a project that happened a few years ago. They're thinking about using, thinking about using, buying the bootlegs and trying to make a project out of that. Um, but then the police phoned up Apple, who are the Beatles, Apple, not Apple Computers, and said, um, "We have, uh, we found some tapes, and it turned out to be the Let It Be tapes." And they picked them up, I think, from Belgium or something like that. And that, so that was that's what the project's from. But yeah, it's completely. It's like some sort of uh, Inspector Morse. To cover the get back sessions in their entirety is virtually impossible with dozens, if not hundreds, of renditions of songs to choose, from the hundred or so hours of session material available to collectors, it would become a tedious day-by-day account of the January 1969 sessions, which would suffer from endless repetition, much like the sessions themselves. Instead, we'll approach the next few episodes thematically, trawling through the extensive Get Back archives to explore some of the recurring themes and ideas which were a hallmark of the sessions. In this episode, we'll take a closer look at some of the songs of Lennon and McCartney, not the same songs that would eventually end up on the Let It Be album, but rather the reminiscent jams of songs from their back catalogue with EMI, and even a few which never even made it that far. To begin, Paul explains the reasons why he and John began writing songs in the first place. So we started off listening then got into a band playing and doing covers of all of these uh, Elvis and Little Richard and uh, records like that. But then what happened was the bands on before us also had these records, so they did them all before we got on. So I would be due to do Lucille and Long Tall Sally, and then from from our dressing room, you know, you'd hear, Lucille! Oh, no! <laughs> And then long tall sign. No, crossing the set list down. <laughs> two songs left by the so time. So he's like, one. and I, I remembered recently. I said, that's why we started to write, and for no other reason. Just so the only way around us is if we write our own songs, they won't know them. So we wrote terrible little songs like like Dreamers Do. It was a terrible little early one, and the Pinwheel Twist, another classic. <laughs> well, you know, we wrote them. We just said, well, you know, they can't access these songs. And uh, it kind of worked. At least they couldn't get hold of them. But they weren't very good, so we had to get a bit better. And then by the time we got a record contract uh, with EMI, then we really had to, you know, step it up a little bit and, and really try a bit harder. Up in the morning, I don't feel blue. Cause I know 
From the 3rd of January 1969, Because I Know You Love Me So, a very early Lennon and McCartney original, dating back as far as January 1958, but a song which was never performed by the Quarrymen. The fact that John and Paul still remembered the lyrics and harmonies more than 10 years later shows that they valued the song, but perhaps it wasn't rock and roll enough to share it with their teenage bandmates. In the process of arranging and rehearsing new songs during the Get Back sessions, memories of earlier, almost forgotten tunes would be resurrected and jammed with varying degrees of enthusiasm, accuracy and completeness. Here's a sample of some of the pre-Beatle Lennon and McCartney songs busked between takes in January 1969. Listen for John's delighted surprise as Paul drags one out of the memory bank. I'll wait till tomorrow Till wow. you come my way That's why I sit here alone And I pray But I'll wait till tomorrow Through a thousand setting sun I'll wait till tomorrow If tomorrow will come I'll Slate 41, take Wait one. Till tomorrow, if tomorrow ever come. Any country influence? Oh, I was in the numbers. Yeah. Girl is like a macaroni. Grown cold, here 
trio of long-lost Lennon and McCartney tunes. I'll Wait Till Tomorrow, probably written by Paul around 1958, but clearly known by John. This was followed by a couple of lines from Thinking of Linking, one of Paul's earlier songs from 1957. He remembers writing it at the front window of his Fortland Road home in Liverpool, inspired by a line from a cinema commercial for Link Furniture, which asked the question, are you thinking of linking? 14-year-old George Harrison, not yet a member of the Quarrymen, remembers Paul mentioning that it would make a great song title one day. The song would be revisited in 1994 when the remaining three Beatles reunited for a jam session when filming for the anthology documentary. The final song in the set was Won't You Please Say Goodbye, written in the summer of 1962 and very reminiscent of Sam Cooke's recent hit Bring It On Home To Me also similar in melody and style to the middle eight of 1964's Babies in Black, a lovely example of Waste Not, Want Not. Two more embryonic tunes from 1957 dragged out of the mists of time for the Get Back sessions. Just Fun and Too Bad About Sorrows, lifted straight from the shared exercise book and marked as another Lennon and McCartney original. The 26th of January 1969 saw Paul go way back to possibly the first song he ever wrote at the age of 14, a number which was rooted in suave jazz style and was a serious contender for donation to Frank Sinatra. Number one this week is the Motherfuckers. Followed by Engelbert Humperdinck. If why didn't she try to run away? And he calls her back, she goes. Stand up, Daisy. Daddy, you're... <laughs> 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 He's okay, cause she's not. 
Impromptu piano rendition of Suicide, a 1956 song which would later be recorded for Paul's first solo album in 1970, but only used as a short snippet as a segue between other tracks, a fairly dark number for a teenager. In busking the traditional Liverpoolian ditty Maggie May on the 24th of January, Paul was reminded of another of his and John's early numbers, complete with thick Scouse accents. Dating back to 1958, Fancy Me Chances With You was conceived as a comedic number, potentially for inclusion in a play which never actually got off the ground. It was never performed live by the Quarrymen or the Beatles, and was never heard of again. Also recorded on the 24th was an instrumental which originates from 1959 and would end up being recorded for Paul's debut solo album.
How did it look in Glasgow? I've no idea. No. I remember it was all. Oh, it was one of the, yeah, Winston's. They were all. Hot as Sun, complete with garbled lyrics, including a few from Obliddy Oblida, and a travelogue style narration. At its conclusion, Paul asks John how a couple of his early numbers go, namely Winston's Walk and Looking Glass, both also written in 1959. Another of Paul's early compositions, often credited to him alone, and recognises the first song he wrote on the guitar, also dates to a time before he had met John Lennon and was experimenting with simple chord changes. Was it a 
John taking the lead on Paul's I Lost My Little Girl, recorded on the 25th of January 1969. This would be the only rendition of the legendary song available to collectors until Paul performed it for MTV Unplugged in 1990, showcasing its Buddy Holly-style arrangements and vocals. Paul has since admitted that the naive rhyming of girl, whirl and curl may have been the reason for its indefinite shelving. While the Get Back sessions would capture quite a few Quarrymen numbers, the Beatles would also naturally return to considering the inclusion of some of their own numbers from their EMI catalogue in the show, again with varying degrees of accuracy or seriousness.
It would, you know, and also from the selling point of view. In America, you know, I was saying. For all these good bogeys. I don't know, maybe it's all new or maybe it's a few, you know. They say, oh, now we don't see any new ones. You know, they would if they had the album and then saw it a week after. But just to hit the first initial thing of us singing all completely new ones, they need something to identify with apart from us. They need, like, so it'd be nice to start the show or end the show with a couple we'll of... We'll rock some up like Joe Cocker did. I've been doing hell pretty good, so I'll do that. I'll tell you which is a good one. Um, today I never needed anybody helping me 
now these days I'm are gone. So I'm all so self-assured. Now I find a change of mind. A medley of Beatles tracks which need no explanation, jammed by the band at different times in January 1969, covering many of their albums to date. On occasion, while sat at the piano, perhaps waiting for the others to turn up, Paul would drift into other Beatles hits, hoping the others might join in. Beautiful geriatric Beatles song, When I'm 64. When I get older, losing my hair, many years from now, will you still be sending me a Valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine. If I've been out till quarter to three, will you still be there? Well, let me take you down Cause I'm 
because that's the great thing. Once you, start, once you start trying to find out chord patterns, you really suss what people are doing and what musicians are doing. Piano renditions of When I'm 64, which evolves into an instrumental jam, and John's Strawberry Fields Forever, this time sung by Paul. And Paul discussing piano techniques with head cameraman Tony Richmond, using his recent release Martha My Dear as an example. Considering that the Beatles had recorded and released the White Album just a few months before these sessions, it's surprising how few of the songs from that album were resurrected for this project. I'm so tired. I haven't slept a wing. I'm so tired. My mind is on the blink. I wonder, should I call you and get myself a drink? No, no, no. No. Lay off the booze, boy. Cause I'm so tired. I don't know what to do, don't know what to do I'm so tired My mind is set on you I wonder should I go But I know what to do Oh no, no
This is slate 435 on A camera, 435 on A camera. White album tracks busked at Twickenham Studios in January 1969. A competent version of I'm So Tired, this time led by Paul, with plenty of drug references thrown in for good measure. John's slightly off colour rendition of Obliddy Obliddy with joking references to the version currently in the charts by Scottish group Marmalade, and a jam of John's veiled swipe at the Maharishi, Sexy Sadie. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, the Beatles give us a shot of rhythm and blues as the get-back sessions continue. Until next time, 